I'm Gary Nall. Nice to be with you today. We have an empowering hour, and we begin with a study from the University of Utah, and it's about a nutrient known as carnitine, C-A-R-N-I-T-I-N-E. And what it does is very good for the heart and the brain because it provides energy. Now, you combine coenzyme Q10, which provides energy, and carnitine, about 1,000 milligrams, you've got a lot of energy, mental energy, physical energy, and heart energy. Very important to do that when you're exercising. But this is not about providing energy. This is a new study published in the peer-reviewed journal Cell Metabolism and reported findings that carnitine in the body can help you better respond to cold temperatures. Cold-induced thermogenesis is an energy-demanding process that protects endotherms against a reduction in ambient temperature, according to Dr. Judith Sumcox and colleagues. Well, what they found is, quote, we found that the liver undergoes a metabolic switch to provide fuel for brown fat thermogenesis by producing this uh, acetylcarnitines. So, quite simply, when you're taking in the nutrient carnitine, you're helping the body deal with cold temperatures. Something simple, not complicated, but think how many times people in the winter feel cold, and this will help that. A study about turmeric. Turmeric, of course, is one of the most important herbs in the world. It would be in the top five herbs. Why? Because turmeric, T-U-R-M-E-R-I-C, has a nutrient in it called curcumin. And that, according to the University of North Texas Health Science Center, and published in the Prairie Journal Anti-Cancer Research, it protects and inhibits pancreatic cell cancer growth. So, listen again, it's very important. If you know someone who has pancreatic cancer, what you should do is getting them to read this article. It's in the peer-reviewed journal, the current issue of anti-cancer research. It found that lysosomal curcumin, C-U-R-C-U-M-I-N, was able to inhibit pancreatic cancer cell proliferation in vitro and when administered to mice three times a week for four weeks, it was able to suppress tumor growth when compared with placebo. And the liposomal uh, curcumin is curcumin delivered by encapsulated uh, liposomes or a prepared carrier with a lipid, meaning fat, lipids are fats, layer. And because curcumin is fat-soluble and is resistant to water solubility, this lysosomal vehicle increases its bioavailability. More of it's going to get into the cell. More of it's going to help you. And uh, so, just the latest on that. And again, they use this for several weeks, and it would be equivalent to about 1,300 milligrams of curcumin per day for a 150-pound adult. Now, mind you, my experience has been far higher is far better when it comes to curcumin for cancer. And uh, But I'm trusting you won't self-diagnose and self-treat. Instead, put yourself in the hands of some of the qualified licensed practitioners like a, a, a holistic oncologist. Yes, there are holistic oncologists who can help guide you. 
especially with pancreatic cancer. So, and that's important. By the way, in one UCLA study, they found that curcumin decreased brain tumor size by a whopping 81%. And it also helped stop and inhibit esophageal cancer cell lines from growing. So, and that was a separate article in PLOS One. So curcumin has thousands of articles about its healing capacity. So if you have cancer, one of the absolute things should be in your, in your diet. Another really important study comes from Oregon Health and Science University. And it's about Tai Chi, T-A-I-C-H-I, and how it helps boost memory. That's important. A new study finds that Tai Chi, that slow-moving form of martial arts, can help slow cognitive decline and protect against dementia. The study found that people who practice a simplified form of Tai Chi called Tai Chi Kuang, that's Q-U-A-N, twice a week for about six months, improved their scores substantially. And uh, so, Tai Chi is important. And they used 300 older adults in their mid-70s who had all reported that their memory was not as good as it used to be. And a person with mild cognitive decline can expect to lose, on average, about a half a point each year on the test. And once their score drops under 18, people experience quite a bit of impairment from memory loss and cognitive decline. So based on these results, if you're able to do your Tai Chi two or three times a week on a routine basis, you're going to get some extra years before you hit that decline in dementia. That's according to them. Now, mind you, I would be taking a far more holistic approach. I'd be using a lot of different nutrients that we know and have proof impact the brain. But we're just talking about one item, something easy, non-toxic, non-expensive, doesn't cost anything. In fact, you can take courses in Tai Chi over the internet. Right? They have classes and you can just join the class, like yoga classes. And why do I spell so many words? It's simple. My audience isn't in the United States alone. It's all over the world. In fact, several years ago, I asked our program director, how many people are listening in different countries? And we actually got a printout. At that time, there were 67,000 in India alone. That's a lot of people in another country. So the English is not always their first language. So I don't want them flooding our office, they frequently do. Gary talked on a program about a particular way of helping with something, but I didn't understand what it was, and so that way it just helps them find the research. And from the University of Plymouth and Nottingham, Trent University, both in the United Kingdom, poetry, yes, poetry, can help people cope with loneliness or isolation. Reading, writing, and sharing poetry can help people cope with loneliness or isolation and reduce the feelings of anxiety and depression. And that's what they found. They found that many people who took to sharing, discussing, and writing poetry as a means to deal with COVID-19 pandemic experience demonstrable improvement in positive well-being. How about that? Something simple. And this was 400 people involved in that study. And over 51% of the respondents indicated that reading and writing poetry helped them deal with feelings of loneliness and isolation. And another 
50%. Said help with feelings of anxiety and depression. Good. And there's lots of good poetry out there. Or write it for yourself. And a new study published by Bastyr University and Boise State University says that two popular foods may turn your immune system against your brain. A study published in the Open Access Journal Nutrients implicates two of the Western world's most popular foods in various forms of immune-mediated brain damage and dysfunction. Gluten, ataxia, and multiple sclerosis. Yeah. A group of U.S. researchers set out to ascertain the presence of IgG and IgM and IgA antibodies against wheat and milk in 400 blood samples. From the 181 males and 219 female donors of mixed ancestry, because wheat and milk antibodies have been found in elevated concentrations in various neuroimmune disorders, the researchers measured co-occurrence of their antibodies against various brain proteins. This, their results revealed significant clustering when certain wheat and milk protein antibodies were cross-referenced with neural antibodies. And so, get rid of the wheat and get in the gluten and get rid of the dairy. All right? So that's important in order to protect your brain and your immune system. And one last study from the University of Quebec in Montreal. Contraceptive pills might impair impair fear-regulating regions in women's brains. More than 150 million women worldwide use oral contraceptives. Combining the COFCs made up of synthetic hormones are the most common type. Sex hormones are known to modulate the brain network involved in fear processing. Now a team of researchers in Canada has investigated current and lasting effects of these contraceptive use, as well as the role of body-produced and synthetic sex hormones on fear-related brain regions, the neural circuitry via which fear is processed in the brain. Quote, in our study, we show that healthy women currently using contraceptives, oral contraceptives, had a thinner uh, prefrontal cortex than men. And that was according to lead research. This part of the prefrontal cortex is thought to sustain emotional regulation, such as decreasing fear signals in the context of safe situation. Our result may represent a mechanism by which contraceptives could impair emotional regulation in women. Something to think about. All right. That's the latest on health and healing. We're going to take a break. Come right back. And by the way, last evening on the Progressive Commentary Hour, I did part two of a two-part series. And that part two dealt with what can you as an individual do to help protect yourself in the crisis that we're in today, especially financial crisis, the digitalizing of our currency, Banks that have given away too much money and bad loans are stacking up. And one of these big four or five banks is likely to go under. With that, with the amount of derivatives they have, that could collapse the entire banking system. Shouldn't we outlaw derivatives and credit default swaps and shorts, naked shorts and options? Yes, we should. 
because that means people are making money off money and not making it the old-fashioned way, creating jobs, putting people to work with a living wage. In any case, it's a packed hour. I don't think you'll want to miss it. I had no guest. It was just my own background and experience, but lots of information, all positive. All right? So go to Live, scroll down to the archives, and it was last night's Progressive Commentary Hour. Now, I'm not airing part one, because that was all about how did we get to the mess we're in today? Someone got us here. It wasn't me, it wasn't you. I go through the history of the collapse of the working middle class in America and the divide between the classes, the poor classes, the working classes, and the professional and millionaire oligarchical classes. This huge divide in status and wealth and opportunity and one group has all the power, and the other group has none. And I go through how this started, who was responsible, and so at least you have background as to why we are completely bankrupt. How bankrupt are we? I give you the latest figures. 734% debt, that's debt, to our gross domestic product. Income coming in, about $27 trillion. Total debt, 300 and $30 trillion. Wow. Unemployment, 27.4%. Their figure is 39 They lie. They exclude everyone who's no longer able to find a job. People who are on unemployment, who unemployment runs out, and therefore they have no income, but they don't have a job. All those people are not counted in their figures. Just massive manipulation. So all that is in part one that you can download from the archive and then listen to part two, one and two, two powerful hours to help you get through this time. We'll be back in a moment. Please stay with us. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Gary Nall. I'd like to say hello to all the individuals listening around the world because we are broadcasting all over the all over the world. So I try to select topics that everyone would find of interest and try to present information that is accurate, non-political, non-ideological, just looking for facts. Today, I'm going to share many different short video clips. And I've selected these because of information we were given that later turned out to be wrong. Our first clip is from a New York City board-certified ICU uh, pulmonologist. Now, I played a clip from him at the beginning of COVID, when people were going into the hospitals. And at that time, he said, we're doing this wrong. We shouldn't be putting every one of these patients coming in diagnosed with COVID and having trouble breathing. We shouldn't put, put them on these ventilators. Well, he was right, but nobody listened. And as a result of nobody listening, they ended up with massive death. I mean, it was like 90 to 95% of all the people that got on a ventilator died. Now, it wasn't the lungs weren't working, and the ventilators are there to try to help your lungs take some of the pressure off. But had they gone into a hyperbaric oxygen chamber, or had they just been able to breathe 100% pure oxygen sitting in a, in, in a chair with a mask on and just breathing that, that would have made a huge difference. But they chose not to do that. And they chose not to listen to him. In fact, he was actually attacked. 
Well, he was right. So I want to thank uh, Mitchell Cohen, who is a, uh, he's an author, he's an environmentalist, and he helped lead the whole effort to get rid of the toxic spray materials that were being sprayed all over New York in our parks that we were all exposed to. He and I both testified uh, at a hearing years ago on that. He sent me a clip last night. I watched the clip. I thought, my goodness, this is three years old, and I want to play it again today. Why? Because the average person engaged not not intentionally, but became susceptible to a mass psychosis where everyone collectively suddenly rushed out to say, I'm in line, I'm obedient, what do you want me to do? Well, wear a mask, social distance. See those little circles on the ground? Stay in that circle. It's all scientifically validated, but it wasn't. None of it was. None of it. Nothing you were told was correct. Even the model of what would cause this whole stay-at-home, close down your businesses, destroy an economy, destroy people's lives, that came from Imperial College London, from an epidemiologist who made a model, and he sent this model around the world saying, well, Sweden, you're going to have tens of thousands. He predicted how many people would die per country if they didn't do this. He was wrong on every single count tremendously wrong. But it turns out when we investigate his background, he'd been wrong multiple times. Held accountable, fired, nope, still there. Anthony Fauci and, and Collins, the head of the U.S. Public Health Service, which oversees all of our health agencies, mandated this. And so as a result, a doctor could not practice the type of individual specialization if they were pulmonologists that could save lives. And so... All of you who said, you know, shoot me up, I'm ready. Just one vaccine, well, two vaccines, well, well yeah, four vaccines, well, every other month a vaccine. Let's make it mandated. And then let's start a propaganda campaign. If you don't get the vaccine, you're an enemy of the people. You know, you, you're, you're really a bad person. Okay, what was the evidence of that? None. And didn't Rachel Maddow say that if you get the vaccine, you will not get infected, you will not spread the infection, you will not go to hospital, you won't die? Yes, she did. Has she apologized for being wrong about everything she did on COVID, including attacking ivermectin? No. Or you don't allow her to. Howard Stern, no better. Now, I don't care about Howard Stern. He has his audience. He's successful. Good for him. But when you're wrong, and he's wrong, how many people took their advice and ended up dying? Or becoming permanently injured. What are the numbers? According to Dr. Jessica Rose, a real expert, not a Rachel and not one of the uh, people working uh, at the at the inner sanctum of all this, like Lewinsky. Five hundred thousand dead Americans. That's more than any war that we've had of American casualties. And that was right up front. And then also 1.6 million permanently injured and 14 million with some form of adverse reaction. The latest study that just came out this week, in fact, there are nine studies this week, all from independent quality journalists showing different aspects of what we did wrong and how it's impacting us now and only going to get worse.
Well, that's how bad it is. Why hasn't the New York Times, 60 Minutes, or any other publication, or any public health official, come forward to say, this is the worst medical disaster in world history, in America. But no one will. So nothing's going to happen to them at this moment. But lawsuits are being prepared, massive lawsuits. More lawsuits are coming than at any time in American history. You'll see it. Let's go to the clip. I want you to know this was almost four years ago. He was right about everything, and nobody listened to him. This is Dr. Cameron Kyle Seidel, ER and critical care doctor from New York City. Nine days ago, I opened an intensive care unit to care for the sickest COVID-positive patients in this city. In these nine days, I have seen things I have never seen before. In treating these patients, I have witnessed medical phenomenon that just don't make sense in the context of treating a disease that is supposed to be a viral pneumonia. Nine days ago, I presumed I was opening an intensive care unit to treat patients with a virus causing a pneumonia that was ravaging lungs across the world, starting out as something mild, a cough, a sore throat, and progressively increasing in severity until ultimately ending in something called acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS. This is the paradigm that every hospital in the country is working under. This is the disease, ARDS, that every hospital is preparing to treat. And this is the disease, ARDS, for which in the next two to six weeks, 100,000 Americans might be put on a ventilator. And yet, everything I've seen in the last nine days, all the things that just don't make sense, the patients I'm seeing in front of me, the lungs I'm trying to improve, have led me to believe that COVID-19 is not this disease, and that we are operating under a medical paradigm that is untrue. In short, I believe we are treating the wrong disease, and I fear that this misguided treatment will lead to a tremendous amount of harm to a great number of people in a very short time. As New York City appears to be about 10 days ahead of the country, I feel compelled to get this information out. COVID-19 lung disease, as far as I can see, is not a pneumonia and should not be treated as one. Rather, it appears as if some kind of viral, it appears as some kind of viral-induced disease, most resembling high-altitude sickness. It is as if tens of thousands of my fellow New Yorkers are on a plane at 30,000 feet and the cabin pressure is slowly being let out. These patients are slowly being starved of oxygen. I have seen patients dependent on oxygen take off their oxygen and quickly progress through a state of anxiety and emotional distress and eventually get blue in the face. And while they look like patients absolutely on the brink of death, they do not look like patients dying of pneumonia. I have never been a mountain climber, and I do not know the conditions at base camp below the highest peaks in the world, uh, but I suspect that the patients I'm seeing in front of me uh, look most like uh, as if a person was dropped off on the top of Mount Everest without time to acclimate. Uh, I don't know the final answer of this disease, but I'm quite sure that a ventilator is not it. Uh, that is not to say that we don't need ventilators. We absolutely need them. Uh, they are the only way at this time that we are able to give a little more oxygen to patients who need it. Uh, but when we treat people with ARDS, uh, we typically use ventilators uh, to treat what's called respiratory failure. Uh, that is, uh, we use the ventilator to do the work that the patient's muscles can no longer do because they're too tired to do it. These patient's muscles work fine. I fear that, we are, I fear that if we are using a false paradigm to treat a new disease, 
that the method that we program the ventilator, one based on a notion of respiratory failure as opposed to oxygen failure, that this method, and there are a great many number of methods we can use with the ventilator, but this method being widely adopted at this very moment in every hospital in the country, which aims to increase pressure on the lungs in order to open them up, is actually doing more harm than good. And that the pressure we are providing uh, that we are providing to lungs, we may be providing to lungs that cannot stand it, that cannot take it, and that the ARDS that we are seeing, that the whole world is seeing, may be nothing more than lung injury caused by the ventilator. Now, I don't know the final answer to this disease. Uh, I do sense that we will have to use ventilators. Uh, we will have to use a great many number of ventilators, and we need a great many number of ventilators, but I sense that we can use them in a much safer way. Uh, in a much safer method. Uh, that safer method challenges long-held dogmatic beliefs within the medical community and among lung specialists, which will not be easy to overcome. But I really believe uh, that they must be overcome. Uh, there are hundreds of thousands of lungs in this country at risk, and, and the time to overcome them is now. Uh, I am confident that if those of us that work bedside with these patients those of us who are witnessing the things that we have never seen before, despite the many years we have worked and the thousands of patients and diseases we have seen, if we can effectively communicate this to all those that are so important but who are not bedside, the researchers, the administrators, uh, those who procure our resources and make our protocols, the politicians, our own governments, uh, if we are able to convince them that this is a disease that is different than anything we have ever seen, I am confident that an answer can be found, uh, that effective treatments can be discovered, and that a plan to disseminate that treatment can be rapidly deployed, uh, and that tens of thousands and probably hundreds of thousands of lives and lungs will be protected. The time for this is now. We are staring into a future in which a great many of our fellow Americans are going to suffer, not to mention people all around the world. Uh, for those of, who will not suffer directly from this disease, from the terrible human cost of this disease, for those who will not lose a family member or a friend, and there will be a great many number of people who will lose those close to them, but for those who don't, uh, they are still going to suffer from the great economic cost of COVID-19. We, we are all involved in this future. Uh, so I urge you, for those of us, for, for, if you are out there, for those who work bedside, I urge you to speak up. Uh, we can, we can change this. I thank you all for listening. Please spread the message and stay safe. Okay, he was 100% correct. Everyone in power, including the syncophats of Pacifica, were also aligned with those in power. Kind of interesting, isn't it? And that's why I don't trust any title people get themselves today. Well, I'm conservative, I'm liberal, I'm left, I'm right. No, you're either for the people or you're for those in power. If you're for those in power, um, we understand you're getting some benefit from it. But don't call yourself for the people or open science or truth in science or freedom to practice medicine as you should. You're just a robot and you were wrong about everything. And that's unfortunate because people had to die because of your arrogance, your conceit, your ideological cult-like mindset. My God, these people are everywhere and they're not growing up. Hopefully, the people in this audience are listening carefully because your life hangs in the balance. And I know a lot of people today who are very sick 
well, Gary, you know, my family and, you know, the doctor said, and, and who am I to believe? Why don't you believe what you find out through your own research? By the way, when he was saying these things, there was a group of doctors who didn't know each other, but they all had something in common. They were all board-certified, orthodox, mainstream physicians and physician scientists, some were MD, PhDs. And they were finding that how everyone else is being treated was wrong. And they just didn't want to follow a path of, of, of injuring a patient, iatrogenesis. So what they do? They started using FDA off-label approved drugs like azithromycin and ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, vitamin C, build up the immune system and vitamin D3 and zinc. And lo and behold, their patients, if they were sick and caught it early, they got over it sometimes within 24 hours. And, uh, and so some of them treated as many as 30,000 patients in one clinic. They all use the same protocol. But individually, the doctors were seeing hundreds of patients who didn't get sick and die. So then they had a meeting and they started sharing information and they called themselves frontline doctors. And their first meeting, I think there were 15 of them, they were all in their you know, uh, lab coats and they were out in front of the US Supreme Court and they made their statements. Immediately they were attacked. They weren't interviewed, they were attacked. And uh, nobody ever in the media met a single one of their patients. Didn't want to. They already knew you were wrong because you weren't aside, aligned with Anthony Fauci. Do you know there was a time in American history and people who listed Pacifica, shame on you for losing a grip on history. Do you remember when you didn't align yourself with the CIA, the FBI, Operation Contel Pro? You didn't align yourself with the secret experiments, human experiments by federal agencies and the, the Tuskegee experiment. You actually challenged these people. You demonstrated against them. You wrote articles against them. And now you praise them, you promote them. They say, we don't want freedom of speech. And you say, yes, you're right. We shouldn't have freedom of speech for anyone who disagrees with us. The head of the national, um, the head of the uh, um, CDC, head of the FDA, they go right back into industry where they came from. And we just got a new appointment now, head of the CDC, 100% orthodox pro-industry, big pharma terrible background, and yet got the nomination because that's what the lobbyists wanted. They put money in the politicians' pockets. Left or right doesn't matter. Remember, none of this matters to those in power. It's a game. It doesn't matter whether you're Democrat or Republican. It's irrelevant. But what's not irrelevant is how people who used to have good quality liberal values knew when they were being lied to and had and it was proven time and again with the church hearings where the FBI or the CIA director at that time had to acknowledge that they had infiltrated over 1,300 news media and that what they gave the news media is what got put on your television at night or your radio. And they have even more power today. And guess who aligns with them? The liberal community. Not real liberals. They're smarter than that. They're embarrassed by people calling themselves liberal, like the Clintons and the DeGores and whatnot, the Obamas. These are warmongering fascists, in my opinion. But that's just my opinion. But if you want to know why we're in such a jam today, 
It's because people who were supposed to be there to protect our rights didn't. After all, did we not just find out yesterday, just yesterday, in a hearing, that we would never have known about had uh, had Jim Comer and some others not get into power, that, uh, that all of the major social media platforms were working before the last election to deny anything positive said about Trump, including the fact that he was not working with the Russians. That was a false dossier. And they knew it. The FBI knew it. Everyone knew it. Well, how is that not election interference? It is. And they wouldn't talk about what was on Biden's uh, laptop, though they had already validated it was accurate. Only now we're finding out the tens of thousands of communications they had about business and checks and money. This is not going to end well for the Bidens, but it should absolutely destroy the reputation of everyone who's been supporting fascism, and that's the people in power. How bad does it get? Let me just give an example. Chris Hedges, let's hear from him. Later we're going to hear from Dennis Kucinich. Chris Hedges is giving us his insight on the Mark Steiner show about what is the end game in Palestine for Israel and Netanyahu. Why aren't American news media publishing any of this information? But they're not. None of it. One side only, as it's been for 75 years, promote Israel, condemn anyone challenging it. Well, guess what? Some people are telling the truth. Chris Hedges is one. Let's hear what he has to say. Welcome to the Mark Steiner Show here on The Real News. I'm Mark Steiner, and it's great to have you all with us. As you are all too well aware, Real News has been covering the Gaza War with real intensity and real focus. The work I've been doing here, Not In Our Name, to Max Alvarez's stunning interviews, especially the recent one, with Issa Amaro in Gaza. The coverage of so many here at The Real News. And in this segment of the Mark Steiner Show, we'll look where this war is going in Gaza. Not only where it might take Palestinians and Israelis, but the entire world. My guest is Chris Hedges, a journalist here at The Real News who you know lived and covered Gaza, was Midi's Bureau Chief for The New York Times, covered the wars in Iraq and the former Yugoslavia, and here at The Real News has the Chris Hedges Report. Chris, thanks. I appreciate you taking the time. I know you've sure. had 10 different interviews and on your way out. <laughs> so it's good to have you here. Let me just start with one of the obvious questions people are asking. What is the end game here for Israel, do you think? What do you think we're, what do you think we're marching towards? Well, most of the people in the Netanyahu government, including Netanyahu himself, have been quite clear for often decades what the end game is. And that's the destruction of the state or even the idea of Palestine. And that will be accomplished through acts of genocide and ethnic cleansing. And I I fully expect uh, things to get worse in Gaza. I mean, they're bombing the hospitals now. There's not enough food or water. Uh, There's, Israel is impervious to requests from Washington because of the Israel lobby. Uh, They have, Traditionally, Israel, because of the power of the Israel lobby, uh, doesn't doesn't really matter what any administration wants. They humiliated Biden when he was vice president and called for a moratorium on settlements. And then the day he was in Jerusalem, announced an expansion of settlements. They uh, bypassed uh, the White House to go speak by Netanyahu to go speak before Congress to denounce the Iran deal. 
they know that, in essence, the Biden administration can't touch the military aid and has no uh, ability to really pressure the government to halt this massive bombing campaign. And I, and I want to put that bombing campaign in perspective. I was in Sarajevo during the war. We were being hit with uh, three to 400 shells a day, uh, four to five dead a day, two dozen wounded a day. And I don't want to minimize that. I almost 30 years later still have nightmares mm -hmm. because of it. But that's nothing compared to what's happening in Gaza. I mean, the first two weeks, they damaged or destroyed 45% of the housing stock. Um, they've dropped, uh, I think it was just in the first two weeks, 20,000 tons of bombs. I mean, this is, you know, a Stalingrad level. Uh, it, it, it's as bad as Sarajevo was. It, it doesn't come close. Thousands of Palestinians are trapped under the rubble. Um, and they have surrounded the northern part. I mean, they, they will do it piecemeal. They learn that from the Americans in Fallujah. You don't uh, essentially attack on a wide front. You, you break up your urban areas into sectors that you then dominate. So um, they've cut off Gaza City from the south, which is Gaza's largest city, about 700,000 people. And they're about to go in. Well, they'll go in. I mean, they don't want to... The problem with urban warfare, which I've been in, is that all of your heavy machinery doesn't really give you much of an advantage. So I think that it's saturation bombing. Uh, I, I mean, they will, they will keep uh, the northern part of Gaza cordoned off, surrounded, but I expect them to kind of bomb their way to victory or what they're going to continue or call victory. Call victory right. Um, they don't really want to start crawling through the rubble fighting Hamas fighters. Other tunnels are an issue. Um, you know, we don't know how big, but they're big. Uh, but they need generators in order to pump down air into the tunnels. Right. Um, I think most of the hostages are probably in the tunnels. This is also a very cynical uh, decision on the part of the Netanyahu government. I don't think many of those hostages are going to come back. I think they know that and they don't care. Um, uh, so it, it, they will, they've cut off food in essence, they've cut off water. I mean, the trucks that have come over through Rafa are, it's negligible. Um, you know, it's, it's a very cynical kind of public relations ploy, but it doesn't do anything to alleviate the tremendous suffering. So I, I, I expect that they will push what remains of the Gaza population over the border into the Sinai, into Egypt, and they will never come back. And there have been reports in the Egyptian press that the Americans have approached the CC government. The Egyptian economy is in a mess at over $160 billion in debt, uh, and they will offer financial incentives, and probably if that doesn't work, they'll use threats and uh, to do Israel's bidding. Uh, and, and in essence, Gaza... Uh, it, it, Gaza as we know it, and I spent seven years covering Gaza. My office was right in the center of Gaza City. It just won't exist. Hmm. So two questions here that popped in my head as you were speaking. I mean, I'm talking to some people yesterday about um, Uganda and Entebbe and the airport and rescuing the hostages that took place. Talk a bit about, since from your experience covering wars and what's happening right now uh, in Gaza, why couldn't Israel have done that? Why couldn't Israel simply have gone in, found out where the hostages are, and rescued as many as possible? What do you think 
Was that possible or was that impossible? No, because the first of all, the hostages are dispersed over a wide area, and second of all, they're underground. You knew they were on the plane in Antibia. They were right. in an enclosed right. space. This is completely different. So I'm thinking about the American end in this. And I know it's not going to happen, but it seems like the only way conceivably to stop Israel from doing what it's doing at this moment would be the threat of a cutoff of aid. I mean, you see inside the Jewish world in America, in the United States, um, I see it all the time, is a growing body of Jews saying, no, not in our name, we don't agree. And, and whether it's marches or articles or, and organizations being developed. So, I mean, that seems to me to be the only way to stop the madness. From well, that would be the only way. Even that might not work because Israel needs that aid to essentially replenish stockpiles. But, you know, they have a pretty robust arsenal. Well, those are the Jews that don't count. I mean, J Street and uh, uh, Jewish Voices for Peace. Not, uh, no, don't count. I mean, for me, they count quite a bit. But I'm talking about in terms of the power structure. And it's, it's money. I mean, it's uh, APAC and, and these, you know, Sheldon Adelson-type retrograde Jewish billionaires by the way, they funded Netanyahu. I covered that campaign. Netanyahu right. was their baby. They they created him and they bankrolled him against Rabin. Um, so, yes, I mean, I think the ultimately, that's why I support the boycott, divestment, and sanction movement, that it is about severing aid and imposing sanctions on Israel. That's the only weapon we have. We're very far from achieving that. Even most of the liberal groups don't support BDS. Um, and, uh, it, 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 the, the Israel lobby is just so well-funded and so powerful and they represent a political strain of a very right-wing political strain within the American population that it does not, uh, I would guess, represent the political leanings of probably most American Jews. When I see what's going on in Gaza and Israel right now, in Palestine, I mean, I know that Israel is... A is not attempting, they're going to seize a huge portion of Gaza. They're going to call it a buffer. They're going to do whatever. They may put settlers in, they may not, but they're going to, they're going to seize a huge portion of Gaza, pushing Palestinians out. But this seems to me, having been through, covered uh, this my entire life almost, either when, when I was a young Zionist to the place where I became a non against that, um, but this seems really different. This moment seems really different in terms of what could happen post-war, and how it could affect... Well, it's not different. It's just different in scale. And the Nakba, or the catastrophe, 48. were, right, 750,000 Palestinians ethnically cleansed from their... was pushed into places like Gaza and refugee camps. The 50 massacres that the uh, Haganah, or the Jewish militias, carried out. So that, that's been part of the Zionist project since the founding of the State of Israel. And in the uh, 67 war, they pushed out another 350,000 people. So uh, it's, it's a difference in scale. It's not a difference in intent. I think the difference is that we have, uh, you know, this, this government is the most extremist that Israel has ever had. Many of right. these people are heirs to America. Okay, he was 
Just some thoughts from Chris Hedges. He was there. He lived in Gaza. His office was in the center of Gaza City. And I don't hear any of the other people in the media who've been, like Sean Hannity says, well, I've been in the tunnels. You had a whole armed escort by the Israeli government. You were their chief propagandist. You're the best-known person on Fox with a large audience. And so every moment of every night, you're promoting one side of the issue. Not once have you showed any compassion or empathy for the children. And by the way, the figures, there's no accurate figure of how many are dead, injured, and yet to be found. But the closest figures are, it's now over 14,000 confirmed dead, over 50,000 injured, and there could be at least that amount buried in the rubble. It'll take months before we know all the people who were killed. One family alone, all were together, three generations, 40 individuals from the same family, they were all killed. And also they're targeting journalists. 36 journalists have been killed in the last three weeks by Israel. And they, they had their you know press badges on, but they're Palestinian press. And they've all been killed. And one of them was, you, you see the video, one, one journalist is talking about another journalist, and that journalist is killed also. And not a word, not a word about, even if you believe that, okay, take care of the Hamas, bring them in, put them in jail, but look at all the people you're killing who are innocent. So we're not seeing the whole story, and that's why I'm doing this. I want to go back to something to show you that there are people out there. This is Christine Anderson. She represents Germany at the European Parliament. And she's one of about, there was only two. And, and uh, Claire from Ireland speaking out. Now there's about 20 speaking out and it's growing. And here's what she has to say about COVID. Just to let you know that there are people who are brave enough to tell the truth knowing they're going to be challenged, but get the message out. Here's a short message from Christine Anderson. This whole COVID madness, this so-called pandemic, it was just a test balloon, a gigantic test balloon. Well, for what, you ask? Well, to see how far they could go, to see what exactly they would have to do to get free individuals in a free and democratic society to consent to being forced into compliance. That's what they were trying to establish. That's what they were trying to figure out. And they have, they have figured it out. Trust me, they are much smarter now. The goal ultimately is to transform our free and democratic societies um, yeah, into totalitarian societies. Their goal is to strip each and every one of us of our fundamental rights of freedom, democracy, the rule of law. They want to get rid of all of this. This whole COVID thing had never anything to do with public health. It never had anything to do with breaking waves. It always had to do with breaking people in order to make us a part of a mindless, malleable mass, which they can totally control, and we will be completely 
dependent upon this globalitarian elite. So I'm really imploring the people and all the peoples around the world, for God's sake, stop giving your democratically elected governments the benefit of the doubt. They are not deserving of that. They are not. Stop rationalizing whatever your government is doing. Try, stop rationalizing and come up with some good intentions. They have no good intentions. Never. As I said before, in the entire history of mankind, there has never been a political elite concerned about the well-being of regular people. And it isn't any different now. Why should it stop giving them the benefit of the doubt? Because I can tell you, you cannot comply your way out of a tyranny. It is impossible. Trying to do so, you will only feed a gigantic alligator in the hopes of being eaten last. But guess what? Your turn will come, and then you will be the one swallowed up. I also have to ask the people, end your silence. Speak up. For God's sake, stop complying. Start rebelling. They're out to get you if you do not resist. Clara Daly and her, two of the most important voices on the planet, talking back from their forum at the European Union as members. And they are they're right on. But someone else is right on is Dennis Kucinich. I like Dennis. I thought he was a noble person. He was gerrymandered out um, of office. And he became RFK Jr.'s campaign manager. But then he quit. Why? I don't know. But RFK, on this issue of Israel, uh, unfortunately, he has done a complete reversal. And uh, he's going to lose a lot of votes because of that. Uh, he says he's anti-war. Well, you can't be anti-war and then support an unlimited uh, support of uh, Israel. You can't. You know, you're one or the other. So... Here's what Dennis Kucinich has to say after he quit being RFK's campaign manager. We are now being presented several times a day with media examples of the effect of extreme violence visited upon the captive people of Gaza. The images are heartbreaking. The reality, unbearable. Bodies of Palestinian families strewn like refuse along a road that they had trekked as a path to safety. A car turns around at a checkpoint in Gaza. Its occupants are hit with a shot from behind from a tank and everything. The car and its occupants disappear in a puff. A Palestinian journalist mourns his colleague, who only half hour earlier was reporting on air. After work, he went home. A bomb hit, killing him and his 11-member family. The video of his ruined house shows several children's party dresses, which lie amidst the rubble. The human family is in that rubble. An ambulance convoy filled with injured Gazans headed to the Rafah border crossing under the supervision of medical authorities 
was struck by the Israeli Air Force, killing 15 people in the stated suspicion that the vehicle, which was headed away from the battle, carried Hamas fighters. War reduces all to nothingness. It is as if the 10,000 Palestinians and more had never existed, but they did, just as the 1,400 Israelis killed on October 7th existed. They had birth dates, names, fragile exchanges of human emotion, of love, of family, private moments in everyday life which confirmed their existence, obliterated nothingness. Whatever media we consume, we see only a fraction of the massive display of inhumanity occurring in Gaza. The reduction of living, breathing, feeling people to objects. This is heartless. It's soulless. It reduces all of existence to the nothingness of smoke, human smoke. The violence is calculated. It is rooted in power politics and racism and apartheid and twisted history, opportunism disguised as vengeance, statecraft as slaughter. We're going to say goodbye to our BAI and so they can go to the news. We're going to continue to the top of the hour at PRN.live and you can call in at 888-874-4888 and share any comments that you have on our presentations. Continue on with Dennis Kucinich. We in America are paying for the extermination of our fellow humans. Our weapons are creating carnage against helpless people. Our aircraft, our ships, our troops have entered the fray, greatly outnumbered. But we are not helpless. We must demand now that our government take a new direction and soon not only for a ceasefire, but for a ceasing of war, the end of arms sales to fuel wars, the closing of 800 military bases around the world, the end of the theft of our tax dollars for killing, the end of pitting people against each other, the end of policies which falsely justify sending our troops into harm's way. It is unfathomable, beyond the Orwellian, to commit ethnic cleansing and call it defense, to preach democratic values while practicing apartheid, to claim wholesale theft of property a right, to take Palestinians' homes, kill their children, destroy their families, their culture, their history, and deem it the fulfillment of a prophecy ordained by God. That this genocide is being visited upon the Palestinians by the descendants of those who suffered the utterly condemnable, indelible inhumanity of the Holocaust is mind-boggling. After all, who has suffered more than the Jews during the Holocaust? Entire families were wiped out in a racist elimination plan. The awful killings of innocent Israelis on October 7th and the wave of anti-Jewish sentiment which followed are a powerful reminder of vulnerability of Jews everywhere. But the destruction of Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank brings back greater risks for the survival of Israel itself and all those who dwell within. Do not assume that 
it's only the artifacts of the humble daily lives of Palestinians which lay buried in bomb craters. The America that could be, our own hopes and dreams for a prosperous and secure nation lie alongside the bodies of the men, women, and children in those ruins. Let us stand for the survival of both Jews and Arabs. Otherwise, we are all participants in the massacres that have occurred and those that are yet to come. The leaders of the world must assert common humanity and enact a cessation of this madness and create a new path and a new map where all survive. And we have no calls, so I'm going to finish with a very short minute, 19 second clip where Mary Lou MacDonald, one of the leading speakers in the Irish Parliament, holds Israel accountable for genocide. Here's what she has to say, and her colleagues and the, and the government are around her. I want the hell that is raining down on Gaza to stop, and to stop now. And we are duty-bound to do everything that we can to bring about that result. There's more than 9,000 deaths now, tens of thousands injured, and we're not to know how many lost and buried in the rubble that is now Gaza. And the world is shouting, stop. Israel chooses not to heed that call, and therefore, the position of the Israeli ambassador to Ireland is now uh, untenable. While Israel persists with this deepening violence, while they ignore the international call for a ceasefire. So we want the international community, and in the first instance, the government in Dublin, to use every mechanism, diplomatic, political, to maximize pressure on Israel to deliver that ceasefire. It cannot stand that Israel breaks international law, breaks humanitarian law, inflicts this level of suffering on a civilian population, ignores the international call for ceasefire, and yet faces no consequence for that. I've presented voices you will not hear in the mainstream media. They would be censored by people who believe that by censoring the whole story, somehow they are aligned with the truth. They are not. We're out of time. Thank you all for listening, and have a nice day.